keep going. Welcome back to Keep Going. This is the second part of a diptych, a two-part artwork designed and connected in theme and style, yet retaining their own individual frame. The first part, released yesterday, was recorded in early July, after John decided he needed to take a break from the podcast. This second part was recorded in mid-January of this year, and includes the original three expeditionaries. Both episodes are themed around suffering. We wanted to honor John's extraordinary style and insights, even as we continue to carry the torch of keep going. We're hoping we made the right decision. John is already sorely missed. So without further ado, I bring you the second part of the suffering diptych entitled the feast of suffering. Godspeed, my friends. Godspeed. It up, John. <laughs> you completely fucked it up. <laughs> How to start a podcast before you've pressed record. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I like that. Yesterday, thought. I like was jotting down notes just real quick for just a couple minutes, and I was like, "So many questions to ask." And then it was just like, "I'm not, I'm not going to ask them right now because because we're going to ask them here." Gonna, yeah, <laughs> we don't know how to start and we don't know how to end. Oh, I've listened to. I have, you know, I've, I'm deeply currently pretty deep in the keep going podcast mode because I listened to all the episodes and then recorded intros, right. which are very simple, but um, I'm not going into them. I have started to think that maybe it would be good to start doing some outros, but then I'm kind of like, if I did an outro, then I would be like leaning into something that I, I feel like maybe you guys wouldn't lean into. Right. So I'm not going to, so I'm not going to do it, but they play well in the car. They, they, I think they play well with a kind of podcast that some people like to listen to. Mm -hmm. So we are definitely, because of the conversational model we have, um, there are a lot of people who want a far more instructional model, but yeah. we're not going to, there's instructions, but yeah. you gotta, you gotta wander through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I, if you want instructions on almost anything, I'm the wrong person to be asking. <laughs> it's gonna go. It's gonna go postmodern immediately. Yeah. Well, that depends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. So, guys, our topic this week is suffering. This was one I brought to the table. I had been thinking about it, so I I did an unpack it. To, well, first I just said suffering, and then I was like, well, maybe I should formulate it a little bit in which the formulation just became an even more metaphysically complex topic <laughs> where it was like, I just think we should be talking about suffering in general. And then John is just before we pressed record, right before you said, we, Michael said, fucking fuck, fuck. We, um, we just, you, 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 John, you said something to the effect of like, well, how the hell do we unpack this thing? And I think we just kind of go with whatever feels right for the day. Yeah. You know, it's like what you, I, I do want to open with this piece. John, yeah. before Michael jumps in, because I can see him stuttering and get ready to pop. Like, 
when you thought that it was complex and there was multiple perspectives, like what was your first thought in terms of like, okay, if I was going to talk about suffering, would you meet it at a, like a, like a global level, like the suffering of the world or some kind of spiritual level of a, of a process of dealing with suffering? Or do you think of it more like, God, my day sucks. Or how do I deal with the suck of this day? Well, when you first brought it up, my first thing was, you know, like it was like global. Um, the, and then, and then I was like, so then we were going to have, we have to sort of, fucking geek out like this and I hate it. We, like, how, it. we have to define suffering. Then we have to <laughs> there needs to be an A and a B and but it, it and that's just because like the last couple weeks when I've been driving into town taking the boy taking Isaac into school or whatever um, there's the same person I see on the same corner and I'm like I don't even know how that person is still standing and I just I think about that a lot. He's a homeless person. Yeah, yeah, and he's in he's in bad shape. But he can't I mean, I've seen him now for a couple of years. And so, you know, and um so I think about that kind of suffering a lot now. And that's not to you know, I'm middle aged, middle class white guy, what do I know? But um then I was like, well, then how do we take that into a running podcast essentially and like is you know so the question i asked was is the suffering that we ask of ourselves when we put on our running shoes is that really suffering mm. or you know because it's self-induced right and like it can be like if you run yourself into the emergency room you know yeah the other stuff, I think, I don't know if that's like really suffering because your body's healthy, you would hope, right? But there is there's some of the same components of suffering, right? Where like you're, it's your body saying this is not an optimal situation, right? I would even push a little harder on that and say the subjective experience objectively feels right dire you know it does i'm not saying that it so feels so in different. that moment the 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 central mediator of that experience is your nervous system and right. it's saying trouble trouble yeah trouble, yeah trouble. there's i mean there's suffer suffer there's there the the red warning light is going off mm-hmm. and all that so but, i still think that's suffering but anyway we is, can, but, it, we, but this is like, a great a great way to meta yeah and because <laughs> i think i think it's suffering is that it there's a component of finality there mm. you know what i mean eminent death maybe not eminent but it you're now aware of it right a lot more aware of it and i think with running like i mean you can run yourself to death people have done it we, it happens every year in races right but that and that's one of the things too that i think we have labeled the suffering that we give ourselves, we ask for ourselves when we go out there. I think we make it more than it really is and it becomes a barrier. Because you're not going to die. You know what I mean? It's okay. Like when you are really like, you're going to be okay. And I think if you like, and of course you know when you're in that state, there's logic and reason have 
they're kilometers back the road, right? Because your brain just doesn't have enough sugar or whatever. And you're, so you're not thinking, but if you could think I'm not going to die, maybe it would take a little pressure off you. I don't know. But this is where I push because I think of suffering. Um, as you said, we probably need some kind of, I, I don't think for this conversation, but in general, if you were trying to work this out in some kind of way, yeah. you'd, you would want to break it down, reduce it a little bit, right. and then you bring it back to a whole. But I, in that reduction, I do think that in that experience, what you're describing, you're describing a, a really an objective, like I said, a subjective, objective experience. Right. So you're feeling these states and they're subjective um, because you're not going to die. Right. But it feels objectively like suffering. Right. Um, and those issues, I think, are probably more easily mediated um, through a variety of pretty simple cues or suggestive yes. techniques or breathing or stepping back or things like that. But there's a deeper level there. This is something that I work on all the time because I, I just think maybe it's just the way my brain goes. But I think there's also an existential suffering because that person, when they get to that, this is we talked about this in one of our first podcasts because I, I edited it earlier. Um <laughs> That when we get to 18 miles, you know, 30K, that sort of magical zone, um, and it, failure becomes uh, relevant, and then our identity is based on not being a failure, right. then you've got a pretty deep existential suffering experience that I think the vast majority of athletes who are performance-oriented have no skill set, have right. no coping ability, and have no recognition that it's even going to show up. Yeah. And that is problematic. Um, and so I think that, yeah, so, and then, yeah, these are first world white, I mean, middle-class people problems, right? right. Somebody who was going to enter a race that's cost $200 to enter or $150 to enter. They're not the down in the heel homeless person that you saw on the street. But, you know, the frames that we bring are, you could say everybody lives in this big giant global frame, but the right. fact of the matter is we're experiencing small little right. personal frames. Right. And in that personal frame, that question of ident that physical suffering and then that in that existential suffering are extreme. And there's an emotional slash safety red light that's bleeping at that point if the identity is being challenged. Right. And so to me, I think that, that that really, you know, you think of it and you think, oh, it's not that big a deal. But the three of us have experienced extensive periods of time in our lives, and I think you guys maybe do it a little more often than I do. I mean, the meditative experience is about not is realizing that you're not your thoughts. So you're going through this process of de-identifying with this is this existential suffering is being done in a in a quiet place, right? Not right. in a loud, aggressive place like a race is. Um, and so maybe there's ways that we can helpfully frame it for athletes to say. How would they go about dealing with that? Do they need a general relationship to suffering in some kind of way? Do they have to kind of big picture a piece of it? Or are they, is it something you can just deal with at the moment by moment? Um, because, you know, like we talked about when you're saying you're doing meditation and you're not your thoughts and you have that moment. When you have that moment, if you're like, I am not my thoughts, it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a gap that opens up in the universe yeah. where you're like, the fuck yep. then who am i for a right. moment yeah. if i'm not my thoughts then who am i and then you that leads to other things um but if you had that if you had that experience on the cushion then you can kind of get it back into the real world and deal with it but if that experience happens in the line at the grocery store <laughs> yeah you're gonna be peeing down the side of your leg and yeah. maybe you're gonna end up you know in an emergency room right. somewhere so mm. i don't know it's like so I don't know what I'm saying there except to say I 100% support your 
comments about suffering. But I, I think about my athlete's experience all the time, and I'm trying to build out models physiologically and psychologically that meets them where yeah. they're likely to be. And so this is why this topic comes up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I'm and like, how like, do we oh, deal with oh, suffering? Yeah. And do we need a grand narrative, something that fits within a big picture? Or is it something we can deal with on a small scale? Or do we mediate sort of polarity between the two? I don't know. That's fuel for the thought. What I thought about this conversation may be becoming. No, I, I love that part of it, too. <laughs> That's I love that. I've got a lot going on. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> I, uh, I can tell. Listen, I... I have I have a couple thoughts because I, I need a I need a bit of boundaries on this conversation. Um goal lines and out of bounds, if you will. Good luck with that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> does this You've have got any Steve and John in the room? <laughs> does this have anything to do with um aligning with our worldview? And, and that's that's a, something that comes to mind specifically is is you said that before and there's this idea that if you don't believe that the suffering is real for example um i don't even know how to even say that but it, if you don't believe that it should happen or could happen and you avoid it then it's it, it's like the great white light. Do you do you see it and run towards it and go into it, or do you turn away from it? Right. And and um, so I'm wondering uh, how how the how our outlook fits in. There was a point in my life when I I was I don't even know where I stand on this anymore. But there was a point where I could draw parallels. I called it like the you know the the eastern western parallel which is this idea that i didn't every time somebody would say well you shouldn't feel that way because you're you know i was given you know i live in the u.s and have a job and stuff like this like you shouldn't feel that way and I used to revolt against that because I'm because I tend to side with the existential and psychological pain part of everything. And I'm saying that pain is pain. When you right. reduce it down, it's it's pain and suffering. And that can have that can take on many forms. It can take on uh, what this person might live. And this is after I took my trip to India. It was very painful for me. I did not come out unscathed on that trip. I went to go seek a journey and a beautiful retreat. And I came back, I came back fucking angry. And, and because I wasn't able to see through the pain that I was, I mean, the inputs, the sensory inputs, and I won't speak on them were, were profound. It was profound. And some people come back from India and they say, it was the most beautiful experience right. I've ever had. I just simply wasn't seeing it from that lens for better or for worse. It was that time in my life. Maybe I had a negative outlook or something like that. But when I came back, I said, I knew deep down that there were periods in my life where I was absolutely feeling an amount of existential pain and psychological pain. I've recently gone through some of that that has just taken me out of the game. So my question was, what's the difference when you reduce everything down? There's right. clearly a difference right. on the... 3d plane but like what's the difference at the 
atomic level. Like I don't, of, I don't know if there is one. It, to me, that that was there was a period in my life where I was like totally one hundred fifty percent convinced that there was no difference. Yeah, and that sounds incredibly. Um, saying it now, even saying it out loud, is like I'm really actually scared to say where I stand now because I don't even know. Yeah. So. Um, but I do like to think about it a lot. So that's where I kind of gravitated towards this conversation. So, so my question in terms of like mile, um, in my case, I just ran a half marathon around mile 10. I actually stopped to throw up a little bit because I lost my stomach and, and I always go a little too hard and I tried to do this whole race by feel. I kind of started my watch and they didn't look at it, went out too hot and realized that I don't have a necessarily I've lost my ability to kind of understand my feel and and I went too hard and I got to mile 10 and kept going I ran it out but boy it was like it was some some interesting things going on last three miles took six miles yeah exactly so so even even that that story arc of the race um something makes me think that our outlook on this, our outlook, what we believe, what our outlook on uh, the world, life, pain, suffering, definitely translates into how we approach um, that's that that arc and and erasing art. That's my kind of that's my that's my ramble at least for this one. Well, of course, I'm going to agree with you because this is fundamental model that I'm working with from a psychological perspective is that. Everybody's got to deal when what we do when we're running at a hard level. When whether it's a full marathon, a half marathon, any distance. I mean, I think some of the most excruciating pain I've ever gone through was in a five k, um, in, in terms of distress. Um, but you're going to have to have some place to get. You have to have some way to get through it. Like you said, that white light. Do you avoid it? That's dropping out, in my opinion. Um, in any way, even if you don't it's drop like out. your karmas. Like, have you, have you dealt with them? Mm-hmm. Are you, are you looking well, at you, them? Well, you, you put your, then John, to John's point, you put yourself here. So is this a real suffering? Well, it experienced that way. So, well, that's what I'm saying. The experience, I think the experience is probably congruent from person to person, right? Like if, if you're in that real existential hole, I'm not going to argue that that's, you know, there's anything good to that at all. I think my thing is like, um, I think this, when we, I, I think at athletes focus on the suffering rather than how not to suffer. Do you know what I mean? Okay. So, Yes, but I think so. Let me see if I can restate. And, but you, knowing, you try to restate. knowing that if you're running a 5K at 800 meters in, you're going to start suffering. Mm-hmm. Knowing mm-hmm. that, so you know this is this comes back to what I love to. This is where I like to point to Courtney DeWalter. Uh, she's a world class ultra marathon era, and she described to Rich Roll in that famous podcast last summer about the pain cave and her description of the pain cave. And I think maybe what you're saying here is do athletes run? She realized that she was running away from the light in every training model in every race and everything she was doing. She was basically saying the light, the pain, that experience. And we're not talking about light in a good way. We're saying light exposes. It shows all the blemishes. It shows you in real, 
It's real. It's real shit right there. Right. right? So she realized she was running towards the light yeah. while trying to keep it as far away as possible. I'm using an analogy for yeah. her. And then she realized, no, the whole point was to be in the light. Yep. And that she needed to put herself in positions where she worked on all the pieces of the puzzle training wise that were important to be yep. sure that she was ready to go do what she needed to do, but that she also spent time in the light yep. so that there was that experience of saying, okay, I'm here and this is what it's all about. Now, going back to Michael's point of view, I would argue that there's something going on in Courtney where she, cause most people, I don't think they can do that. So no, either she's, to, it's, either, it's something that you have to practice. You have to or, like, or you have to have a deeper worldview that's already baked into the model. It's I've something about people. the worldview is very important in this. Like, do you believe that that's okay? To but I would bet, it? but I don't know Courtney DeWalter at all. I don't know where she's coming from, from a worldview perspective, but she might just say, no, I keep it in a box. Okay. So she, I think you, I think it is possible. I've seen people do this, especially secular atheists <laughs> there. They can put it in a box. Mm -hmm. So the worldview is that we're worm food. And so it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense why I'm running this race. So because there's no, it doesn't make any sense that I'm running this race. Therefore I can just push myself to the end because it doesn't really matter. That's okay. And then the meaning just comes through the event itself. Okay. There's no deeper level of meaning. So I do think that the worldview is important for anybody who is operating what I would call on an ontological basis, which means that right. basic being basis. But I'll tell you guys, the three guys in this room are thinking that way all the time. But the vast majority of people I work with, when I use those like that language, they are like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking yeah. about. And so I want, and I'm not denigrating the uh, philosophical speculations or depths at which Courtney DeWalter goes to, because I don't know her. Right. But my guess is she keeps it separated. And that for her, this is a way she practices her joy and the joy is pain and suffering. And so she's got a different way of looking at that. Um, but I think that you, the three of us and the way I operate is like, I, if an athlete can do that consistently, then they're operating at a really high level and they're probably getting a lot out of that event. But when somebody has got a full-time job, kids and other stressors out there, um, the relative merits of suffering and going through the light get really, it gets really exposed and you're like, why am I doing this? Yeah. And then it takes an experience where somebody says, I want X from it. So it, maybe it doesn't have to be a worldview necessarily, Michael, maybe it just needs to be a purpose to that particular engagement. Mm -hmm. um, so I've decided today on this day, based on my plan to run 200 miles or to run 26.2 miles or 13.1. Yeah. And where it really runs into problems, especially for people like Lena this weekend when she ran the marathon and she was going into it pretty flowy. And for you, when you went into the half or you're going into it, I'm just going to run by feel and by flow. Yeah. It still takes a really, really it, empirical, <clears throat> focused plan of attack to be able to do that f effectively. Because if you don't, then you're going to get into this place where like, what the fuck am I doing? And right. there we are in existential suffering. Yeah. And then you're, and you I'm trying to avoid yeah. this. I'm trying to get out of this box. I'm trying, no, you're supposed to be in it to figure out what it is. And I think that that's what you're saying, John, is that people are training not to go there. Their actual training model is based on the fact that you're never going to meet the fun part, like the yeah. devil in the road. You're never going to get to the crossroads and have to make a deal with the devil. That's what training's for, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it's for is understanding Ex pain. Exactly. And in, but in not when your identity is around the result that you get. So yeah. not when your identity is wrapped around getting a want, the number at the front of your name or the number at the back yeah. of your name. Once yeah. that because so it's now no longer a beautiful race. So for those of us who think about a beautiful from a beautiful race perspective, I mean beauty is suffering for your cause. And suffering for no good reason is even more beautiful. That's the most beautiful beauty we see. Yeah. 
I mean, think about Edward Munch's The Scream. Right. That picture is like just exuding 19th century, like World War One pain. Right. And yet we all look at it and we're just like, been there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I relate. Yeah. Every, yeah. I relate. Yeah. Every, yeah. yeah. I've, I've experienced one time, um, I think in a, probably a same, same experience that you've all had, but the kind of like separating the duality of the mind and the body. I believe firmly that the pain that we experience physically is not our pain to a certain extent. It's it's just it just is what it is. It's pain in the legs, it's pain in this and that, but it's not attached to the mental like there, there. I don't really draw a line from the physical body to the mental pain, and so for me, training is is trying to understand that the physical pain is not always attached to what's going on for the mental portion of it all. And and the best training cycles that I've ever had have been totally focused on that. Um, let's explore that the pain that I'm experiencing is not mine. It will come to go. And this session is just a session in exploring that, exploring like a playground of pain. And that playgrounds are generally fun. Like exploring this pain is the training is 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 very interesting. I mean, there's a lot of esteem that's built in those in in those types of workouts. And is that part of the the DNA strand of this conversation is 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 there a right or wrong in, in, in exploring the kind of duality of it all? I mean, is there, does that own a place in this conversation or is that another conver- conversation for another time? I could go on. Yeah. Yeah. John, why don't you take that one? Well, no, I don't, I, there's no, there's no wrong in exploring it. And I think that it's, so while we've been talking about this, I've been thinking about the way, like, when you're on the cushion, when you're sitting, Mm -hmm. at least in the way I practice it, um, the the way you look at suffering, which is the way, and the way I always describe it it is really kind of janky and everything, but it's watching a fly on a wall. And that's all it is. And that's what I boiled it down to. That's what I believe too. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And you walk, and so once I once that clicked with me when I when I was meditating, then I started applying it when I would lace up my shoes for sure. And it like that. I mean, like on day one, it was like oh. And so you know, it started as meditation for me as well. You know, when the you're you're let's say you're going out and you're just going to do like a steady 45 minute run, right? You're not, it's not lights out, but you're a good hard run for 45 minutes. So that, you know, that's hard just to do. Right. Mm -hmm. But let's, you know, to to modulate between what's hard and what's not for 45 minutes. You've got to be mentally engaged. I just wanted to bring that to the listener that it's not that you're going out for an easy run for 45 minutes. It's like you've got a pure purpose. 45 minutes. My athletes pee down the side of the leg when I schedule this kind of workout. They do not like it. It, Because you, you have to be engaged. But so, you know, when the red light comes on at some point, right? And I think people who like have 
paid a lot of attention will know that there's a warning light for that warning light and there's a warning light for that warning light and a warning light for that warning light. But most people don't pick up the first ones. They just don't. And that's why that when that first light comes on, they're like, holy fuck balls. And they panic and all that kind of stuff. And that's when, when you're really running on feel, by the time that big warning light comes on, you're, all, you're already okay with it. So you're still, you're still miserable, right? For the last seven, eight minutes of that run, but you're okay with it. It's been a steady drip in yeah. essence. You, you turn it into a steady drip. Right. Because, I mean, physiologically it is. And so you watch it as if it's, you're watching the physiological process. So I think I mean? there's two fundamental things here that are really interesting. Because you guys' model is a detachment model. Because mm. you've gone through a mediated experience of how the Eastern slash, um, you, know, you might say Buddhist approach, whether it, you're full on in that mode or right. not, you're recognizing that life is suffering and the best thing to do is to step back and detach yeah. from the suffering and that gives you distance to be able to deal with yep. things. And I'm from a more Western standpoint, basically I'm like, no, you go through. Yeah, I'm like... The only way is through. Yeah. So I don't want to detach. I want to go right up to it because the beauty, the suffering is the beauty. And that's yeah. the way I've always seen it because I'm a messy, chaotic dude, yeah. right? Detachment has always been a construct that has never worked for me. Yeah. And so I think that there's two ways that, I mean, there's probably maybe more than that, but I know there's at least two. And this is really not an Eastern Western construct. I'm just phrasing it this way. I think it's more dispositional. I think once you find a coping mechanism that works, you should use- Understanding pain. You should use, whatever your, the way I like to say it is to see See clearly. Now you're not using your mind, your visual, like you said, John, like you saw clearly that pain was dripping. And then your relationship from a detached perspective is to say, let me hold this in a place where I can watch it develop and move. And then I can manage it a little bit better. Yeah. And for me, the way I've always been is I'm going to go out hard and then it's going to hurt and the red light's going to come on. And now the beauty is how do you stay yeah. with the pain right. and stay there? And you know, it's super interesting because you're, you weren't doing Buddhist meditation before you adopted that kind of attitude. No, You weren't doing TM when you decided that, but by the way, TM is not Buddhist, right? Buddhist, it's Hinduist, no. but I'm just using that frame, but right. um, you're still like, you're still, you've always been detaching. Right. You've always found it's that as a useful weird. approach. Yeah. And I've always felt like getting in and getting messy and getting naked and then seeing what happens, yeah. right? The cool oh, thing God. is, I think there's common ground like foundationally they sound identical in practice you still face it you yeah. still look at it you still understand it you still it, have to and go, you through still it. go through it one of them is like it's it seems to be like maybe it's not a worldview or something it's just it's the way that like it sounds like there's two routes if you want to go about understanding it either you you walk up to it and you look it in the face and you laugh at it and you practice that or you walk up to it, you see it, and you understand that it is temporary. It is something that you can remove yourself from. It yeah. is something that you can take an objective, you know, snapshot of. And that's where my that's where my obsession with objectivity comes from. Is pain is in from my experience, pain is an objective idea that's involved in the body and then the mind is kind of the look at it and go for it and just and hit it straight on because the body 
will experience that like the physical will experience that but the mind whether you detach from it or run right through it is it's almost like a style that's the to me that's maybe where the style comes in yeah i think so and i also think we need to think a little bit about mind and a dualistic approach because mind is like (laughs) john sorry (laughs) no because it's like i was like i just thought it's kind of like mind. Yeah. And then it's perfect. So, the anyway. mind... The, the, it's I, a different I, athletes, too. Like, when you're coaching, it's like... Dude, I've been... Just recently, I've been breaking... I've been, I've been trying to create a mental training model for athletes, right? Mm-hmm. So, I've been doing all this work and all this work, and over the last two days, it's been like, well, what the fuck is the mind? <laughs> <laughs> because, because there's a couple different ways to approach the mind. <laughs> and uh, there's a guy who I've been reading and listening to a lot of his work. His name is Greg Enriquez. And he's like, listen, the whole psychological model that's be, that's been built by Western society is totally fucked up because it's got a behaviorist approach. It basically says that the mind, that you're, it's what you're saying. Like there's just this, the, the mind is just a thing that does things. Right. And then there's another side that says, no, mind is all. That's the Buddhist approach. Mind is all. So like one is like, no, mind something to get through. And the other one is no, mind's the whole point in a sense. Right. And he's like, wait, let's let's realize that we have two minds. We have a what he calls an animal mind, which is the way we grew up. Watch your dogs, watch your animals, watch them. They have a mind. They're fully conscious. They're fully. I mean, there are people who would argue with this, but I can see that trees are conscious. This this plant will grow towards the light like it's doing something. Right. So that mind is baked into the DNA. When we talk about mind, we're more talking about this human mind, this mind that discerns that now there's a self in place, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's really useful to take these two and realize what you're calling dualist, right? Really kind of is one thing. It's just we're operating at two different levels Mm -hmm. and we need to find a way to be coherent with them. I don't necessarily know that they come together as one is nice and a neat a package as people will say that because I do think this is where mind-body stuff comes in and where people have significant issues of pain and suffering that have no physical manifestation, but yet they're absolutely really there. So you're like, well, what is that? Because no dog, no dog ever has that. Yeah. No dog ever is pretending, not having a mind-body experience of pain. My dog is, if my dog's limping, I can find a direct correlation for why my dog is limping. But if a person is having lower back pain, we know for a fact that there's a whole bunch of mediating things. And this is a problem with our medical establishment is they're not recognizing two minds, right? So I think from that perspective, it might help our listener to say, so where does suffering fit into the mind? Well, the way that suffering fits in is you've got two regulating tendencies in your system. One is instinct animal and one is rational self-approach self self-expression self self self-involved so when i say when you say i'm having a physical suffering at 13 it's 18 miles Damn. and i'm saying you're having an emotional experience at 13 miles it's both are happening but which one is mediating and then this mind-body question starts to come in like what is psychosomatic so what is creating fail my quads are heavy or here's a great one we know this, like John, you, I mean, how many times have you worked with athletes who cramp over the last four to five miles of the marathon yeah. and they've taken in copious amounts of electrolytes and we know electrolytes have no correlation whatsoever to whether somebody cramps Especially or not. not in the last four miles. No, mm-hmm. it's like it's over. It's, yeah, I mean, it's unless over. it's yeah. 80 degrees and something else and we've got different situations when that happens. We see physical right. failure. But when that happens to me, I'm convinced that's psychosomatic. So I'm convinced that the body's throwing breakers 
It's basically saying, it's hey, it's, this level of suffering is too high. You may not be able to manage this, and you may not be able to take care of kids tomorrow, and you may not be able to reproduce, and you may not be able to do X, Y, and Z. Right. The animal part of it just goes in and goes, throw in the breaker, dude. Yeah, Pow! that makes sense. Yeah. You don't get to choose. And the human mind's like, but I want it so bad. Yeah. Well, right. you're going to have to get to yeah. that edge Sorry, and you're dance. Not, you're yeah. not ready for it. You're not ready for it. you got to dance to that edge. you got to yeah. push that out there to get there. And I think if people understood that a little bit more, they could say suffering, they could have a relationship with suffering that's a little bit different that says, okay, this is, and this is my main point that I wanted to get to today. Suffering is a relationship. At, you know, we talked about this the last time we met. I think everything is relationship, but it is you in relation to another thing. And that is where all the exploration can happen because that dancing then happens in a safe way. And that's what training's about. Yeah. Training's about not, in Courtney's way, it's not going away from the light, it's going towards the light. So you can mediate that experience and maybe get a much more robust fuse or breaker box situation so the breaker doesn't get thrown on your experience. Or if, you, or if you're in your analogy, John, the light, there's a smaller light that's a small little indicator of you know, like your yeah. fuel light that goes down. Less fuel, less fuel, less fuel, right. less fuel. Isn't it amazing that the more and more and more you drive, this personality type I have, I can go further and further and further and further with a tank of gas. Yeah. Because I can see that red light turned on and I know, oh, I have another five miles. Oh, I have another yeah. 30 miles. I have another 10 miles. I got another five miles. I've got another mile. At this point in time, I'm going on fumes. I'm not sure when I'm going to, and I never get to that point. Like I yeah. stop before I get to that point. I think that that's what we're having with suffering and suffering is like a, at least in the running perspective, suffering is something you can deal with. Um, I do think there's a great conversation about how you handle suffering from the outside. But that's maybe for further down. Yeah, because there's, there's, you know, I think the suffering that comes from the outside has to be managed in a different way, right? The the suffering, the internal existential, um, is, I think, can't be avoided. So, for I think maybe we're saying sort of the same thing because you said relationship to it. So it's how you're going to uh, deal with what you can't escape, right? How you're going to relate to it. How are you going to relate to it, right? And it, at least for me, and this is someone who's never operated at an elite level, well, in anything, but certainly in athletics, um, I was always really, really scared of when, like, when it, it, it was particularly in a race. Like, I could train, at, you know, and almost optimally, right? But even before the race started, I was like, oh, shit. And I'd like, my stomach would start cramping and all that kind of stuff. And... So, like, in middle school, in an 800, they're all run the same, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, you can watch one middle school 800. and <laughs> You've seen them all. <laughs> you've seen them all. Kids are walking. And, and, <laughs> yeah. You know, unless, you're, unless <laughs> you're looking at a video of an athlete who is years beyond mm -hmm. where they are at that, at that age. But it was like, the first 400 was always, I was like... This is cake. And I'm not a sprinter at all. But remember, for a middle schooler, an 800. And then, you know, at 150 meters to go, 
I'd go from second to seventh like that because I was so afraid because that last 150 meters, you're not speeding up. You're trying not to slow down. And that pain freaked me out so bad that like it, like it was, there was even if I you wouldn't would, let the breaker you would never let the breaker fail you would just no nope, yeah. breaker never failed you were always mediating it prior yeah, to that prior yeah. and I thought about that all the time like how do I avoid that you know because there's you know that guy's he somehow dealt with it and I beat him all the time in training or whatever um and it took. I think until uh, a regular meditation practice to know that you have to go into that light. You have to, because that's, that's why you're here, <laughs> right? Yes. You have to. Um, and so it's, it's how you sort, how you accept it. You know, do you not accept it and just go in head first and hope that the fuel doesn't run out before the finish line? Or do you go in and go, you know what? The fuel might run out before the finish line. Here we go. Which is the exact same thing. But just like a little bit, you know what I mean? It's knowing you're going to go in there like and kind of being content with it and going in there like charging. But what if you could go in there and manipulate reality? Yeah, I think you can. I know you can. Yeah, because you, that's 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 where. Well, yeah, that's that's what it now, is. Now, you were using an analogy of a middle schooler, so right. you weren't mm -hmm. at that point where right. you could, right? Yeah, but later yeah. on, you what you're stating is that you were doing that, and I think this is the place where any model of mental training needs to take in consider, into consideration something that I'm calling the feast of suffering. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's that if you press enter on a race mm -hmm. entry. And then you do the training and then you show up to the race and you're standing there with thousands of other people to run the race. Everybody in that experience from the start, from pressing the button all the way to the start line, they're all queued up to go into a 26.2 course feast of suffering. Yeah. And if you accept that, this is where I got, I got this from Courtney, right? That idea of the pain cave. It's like, we, it's not all pain, but it is a feast of suffering and it's just coming at you at different times. You don't eat dessert at the beginning of yeah. a multi-course meal. Like you go through it. Yeah. You go through it. How do you do that? How do you create a feast of suffering in your training so that you're in a position? And then, cause it, that feast of suffering, do you notice the word I used feast? Right. Everybody, it's a party, man. Yeah. And that's what's happening at the starting line too. It's crazy. There's a party. Everybody's so happy. They're all going to suffer, especially if it's 26.2. Like they're all gonna reach a place where they're absolutely in pain. There's no way around it. Everybody from the guy who wins to the person who's the last person across the line, they've all gone into this feast of suffering. Yeah. And I think that there's multiple levels here. Like that first piece, I think people are not doing. And that's what you weren't doing as a kid. You weren't saying all middle school kids who run 800 are all going into a same similar feast of suffering and we're gonna see what happens. Right. Some people are gonna come at it a little slower. Some people are gonna come at it a little faster. Some people are gonna put a mid-time surge. Some people are gonna do it different ways, right? But at the end of the day, it's a feast. And I think if athletes can think of it that way, and then if you take that, to me, this is where the beauty of running, I'm always talking about this, this then brings it into real life. 
because then you see you see what we call um, tragedy as just a part of life. Right. That when terrible things happen, they're a part of this feast. In the analogy of that, if I, I believe in a, I potentially believe in a multi-life model, okay? And so this time we're just supposed to learn. Regardless of whether it's one time through the show or if it's multiple times through the show, I have a tendency to think yep. it's the second, but I don't know for sure. I'd say we're still imperative to look at it as a feast of suffering and not look at it as how do I dance away from all the pain and suffering in the world? And then you look at that guy who's at the corner, right, John, that you restarted yeah. this conversation with, and he's on his own. He's at his. He's at the same feast of being alive, and he's just just dealing with it differently. He's just managing his experience of this differently. But you can sit there and look at him and say, you know, I think it's dangerous to say he chose it. Because he didn't. He's right. found himself here. But you can at least look at him and say, we are the same, brother. We're still fighting to be alive. Yeah, the, the fundamental difference there is that that guy's never going to be able, he's not in a situation where he gets to choose to run a marathon. You know what I mean? He's never going to have that. So I want to separate myself from that guy in that sense. But he... He didn't choose to come onto the earth either. No, I know. But and what I'm saying is that... he didn't choose to come onto the earth. No, but I get to make the choice to go run a marathon... And I'm in a position where uh, I can make a choice not to end up where he is. You know oh, what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know the context for that particular individual. So, but I do say, but I do hands. Yeah, but um, I do think he's at a feast. Of, I mean, he could have ended it. Yeah, he has an option to end it at any time, and he's still here. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a that's part of a natural survival instinct right i mean he he's asking for handouts i mean there's a whole so, bunch of 18 year olds in japan who don't think that way because they're all hanging themselves and right. they're all doing other i mean yeah. yet we've got periods of time where people don't choose that for whatever right. reason but i think it's because we don't look at life as a feast of suffering personally that 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 to me is like if you wanted to take this at least to the to the primarily white middle-class people right. who are listening to this podcast at this point, right. if you're running marathons, then you could actually translate this feast of suffering to your life in a way that might be effective and helpful right. and find connection and interconnection with other people based on that we've all decided to be here. We may not have all decided to be here. And I don't, I'm going to, by decided, I mean, we all found ourselves here and we're dealing with the shit hand that we got dealt and, or the good hand that we got dealt or the good hand that we played well. So we could be where we're at or the hand that we played poorly because we didn't play right. Right. And you could value judge those. And to me, that's all just bullshit. It's like, no, we're just all here, human living, fighting to be alive, to stay alive. And that to me is that same experience. Then I can have that daily experience that people that I have when I'm standing on a starting line before a really hard race. Yeah, I think about this with ultras, especially where there's no objective to run in a, a time, but they're just standing there knowing they're going to go through great levels of pain and they're in joy prior to it to go do it. I mean, it is a little bit sick and twisted. Somebody from outside our communities could look at us and say, what the fuck's wrong with you? There's real world problems. There's real yeah. problems out there. Why are you, why are you trying well, to expose yourself? Like, and that's, I think that's like running lately for me has been, except for when I was, when like the, maybe the first few years I started running, when it I was like really, it was like an exploration in the, this new thing. Running has been like enjoyable. Like really, I look forward to it. It's 
even when it hurts, um, it's kind of fun. And that, you know, not in the masochistic way, but it's because I recognize now that I'm in a position where that's how I can go have fun. And it's worked well for me for, what, 40 something years. <laughs> so, and that, but now I'm just going to have a bigger appreciation for it because there's something about going for a run where, you know, or like when you're doing a session, you know it, it's going to be really bad or in a race, you know it's going to be really, really bad and yet you still do it. You know, and to me, and I've reframed, I, is this what you were talking about, Michael? It's like I've reframed because I know that the suffering I'm doing isn't going to end my life. I've reframed it and it's all play for me now. Mm. You know what I mean? And maybe that's a, like putting myself in a position where, eh, you might shit your pants mm -hmm. in front of a lot of people. Like that's kind of, it's cool. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, because I understand that I have the ability to make that decision, it's just like, that's ah, fucking cool. So now when I go out and run, I feel like I did when I was like 10 years old. Like, and, but back then people were like, what the fuck is he doing? And now I'm like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. Well, the people driving by in their Teslas might be saying, what the fuck is he doing? Because well, the, the people I run around are all in giant pickups, mostly. I, um, right. I'm, I'm thinking, I don't even, I like where y'all are going with this. That's why I'm kind of a little hands off because y'all had some really good back and forth there. But what, what I'm going through is I'm, I'm coming back to Um, what are the two types of minds, Steve? One is uh, an animal instinctual mind and a human, um, you might say self-reflective mind. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to draw a line between the, the cognitive behavior pattern, which is thoughts motivate our behavior. Yep. But I was taught for actually that got me into a lot of trouble, a whole lot of trouble. Thoughts motivate behavior. And because I used to think that there was not that that's all that there was. Right. And what I was taught is that in between the thought and before the behavior, there's this ability to kind of stop that transaction and to understand what's in between, make a decision make the next right one that's where like you can go decide on am i going left or going right and to me training is is a big deal for this like thoughts motivate the awareness and the awareness i can then make a decision and that decision results in a behavior well cbt says it's thoughts you initially you're going thought to behavior and cbt says no thought now bring it to belief mm -hmm. and then pull from belief into behavior right right because that's they're because trying to make a decision decouple. yeah decouple it they're bringing you to the belief and then you call it awareness but, but i think belief is the words they use and i think it's much better and it works for people but if that is that's, that is coming back to your worldview point, right? Like, okay, what do I believe about that mm -hmm. thought? And then it, then it can show it, you know, from a drinking perspective, let's just say you like thought, I'm, I want a beer, I want to drink, 
to getting the drink. And then, then if you have to bring that through to the belief, then you're saying, but I don't really believe that's going to be good for me. Right. You can wrestle at that level and fail, still go to get the drink. But at least there's something else has happened that's made it go from yeah. one to the other, which aligns really well with the Eastern thought of you are not your thoughts. Right. And, and that's where I think that for the program that you've been contemplating on, I don't think the outcome is necessarily the most important thing. I don't think that having a total, I just, I actually think that the exploration is the most important for people because for me, exploring that prompted ways for me to have, to, to come up with my own beliefs. So simply the module, if you will, could be, let's think really hard about suffering and pain and because a lot of if we don't do that then i do think we're at a disadvantage if we're shooting for something that might require it in something as you know i don't know if it's secular but or whatever is the marathon which is a choice which is that that it's not the animalistic it's the other it's it's something that we kind of superimpose the the reason that i always find that training is you know, when it comes to racing, training is holy ground. Like for me, like it's everything. The race is, the race is disattachment. It's, it's everything. It's, it, it is the feast of suffering, but like any Michelin restaurant, for example, goes through suffering before that plate gets out. And, and, and to me, this is kind of I believe that that is a noble pursuit. And so that's why training for me is the single most important aspect of why I run. It's, it's understanding, it's the exploration, and it's understanding that there will be thoughts that motivate behaviors. And if I create belief systems in place of those and reinforce those and practice those through the training, it's a huge, huge deal because you could be completely agnostic about about your racing and I just think that that's where you don't get you don't get to you don't get to have a proper feast if if you're kind of complacent about that and and so maybe for your consideration the module is simply an exploration that's all it is it's not based in one way or another it's just a pure exploration because prompting the thoughts are as good as anything because it just generally creates a values and belief system um, specifically because that was so important to me. I have it tattooed on my arm, Battle Lies Within. I put it on my first shoe that I ever created and put out into the market. People made fun of it. It was kind of, kind of like, it's all this like bullshit that he's putting on the shoe, this motivational nonsense. A lot of people loved it. A lot of people, people like went ape shit over it because, because it it's like, true. Because it's true. <laughs> Some people thought it was a little bit, you know, I don't know what they think, but they're, I don't think that they're in touch with, with that side of them. And I don't think that they know how to understand what we're talking about if they think that that's silly. Because it, it, it's, it's very true. We, we shouldn't reconcile external forces for internal problems. Inter- the mind, understanding the mind and, and the prison that that can create is, is a matter of life or death. Understanding the mind to me is a matter of life or death. Training and running is the ultimate way of getting in touch with what we're thinking and feeling, learning how to reconcile internal with internal instead of external with internal. And that to me is pain and suffering. It's all through training. I don't know anything else on the planet earth that can give me more of a 
simulated experience than a marathon's training cycle. I mean, I, that may sound pretentious. I don't, I don't know, but like it's, it's, I mean, it's right on. It's, it's just, it's so profound. And I mean, you can probably get that through pickleball training. I don't really know, but like, I, I think that marathon training is a big deal. And I think that's why the half marathon is like one of the, the fastest growing events in the U S it's why trail running is exponentially growing. It's why, it's why running is not getting smaller. It's getting larger. It's like the population is because I think that as we come more disattached in the world, and with society and you know ai and all this crazy shit that's coming out i do think that it's very important to get viscerally aware of what we're thinking and feeling and to me understanding the mind is a huge part of that well you know you said that maybe the module is not focused on um the end result right it's the exploration so the model that i'm produce i'm i'm coming to this whole thing with is the idea of a beautiful race so the whole model is that the end, that the middle, the path is the journey. The, 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 the journey is the whole, not to get to the end, but it's the path. And that comes from a, an appreciation that you're using your body in a way that creates beauty. Um, and beauty is self. Ref- you, you, that, that idea that you put the battle lies within and some people said, ooh, don't like that. Their definition of beauty is different than your definition of beauty. That's mm-hmm. aesthetics. You just put it aesthetically. They were just, they were giving. It's a very, it was a, a lot of people like to even call it, it was a masculine and, and, and it is, it's, it, but not like man or woman, it's like masculine or feminine. It's, it's just, it's just a very powerful stance that says like, well, I don't know anybody that puts on a pair of shoes that isn't in battle. I, that's so, so that's anybody, what I'm so saying. Anybody that wants to bitch about that, they're like, "What are you doing?" So you're just going out for the because I don't think you're not making that. And it all end. starts with the mind. You don't wake up and go, "I'm feeling unhealthy." The first thing you do is is you you go to a run specialty store and you ask somebody what what you need to get healthy, and that's like everybody's first step. It was my first step. Went on running warehouse, looked at all the reviews, read all the reviews for like 16 weeks, and then buy a <laughs> pair of shoes. Um, and then, and so, I mean, but that was a mental, that was the thought. The thought was I'm going into, I need to go into battle. I, the fuck? <laughs> like, it's so funny that like, that we all do this because we're, we, we're craving, we're craving that we're craving. But change I think it, it can momentum. be, I agree with you. I mean, and I'm stand behind your put, placing that name on your shoe. I'm also spending a little time looking at the person who's, who's, who's upset or finds a problem with that. And I just say they have a different aesthetic approach. Yeah. Um, one that's, really not in tune and touch with the customer base that's out there. Yeah. So to me, it's like Michael's version of beauty is the battle lies within. And believe me, you found people who resonated with that. And so that's actually a whole point. Like, okay, the, the Nimbus can look a certain way or some other shoe can look a particular mm-hmm. way, but Hey, let's like, it looks nice for 23 y'all. <laughs> The Nimbus 25 looks pretty plush. It I think does. we're on 25 editions of it by now. Something. Crazy. I was thinking, I don't know why this popped into my head. I guess now because I've got kids who are in that age bracket, I'm starting to think in memes. And so then I remember that picture. There's that dog. He's wearing a hat, got a cup of coffee, sitting at a table. 
<laughs> Everything around him is in flames. And he's going, it's fine. You know what I mean? That's like, that's just the way I see myself. Like, it's okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, like earlier when we, before we pressed record, I was like that feeling when the inside of your skin is on fire. And Michael was like, yeah, <laughs> like, I'm like, that's it's fine. <laughs> you know? like, like, oh, and we were talking about, what did we, tinnitus or something like that? We were talking about, we referenced tinnitus when we were having mm-hmm. a, and that's what, like, the, that's kind of like what it feels like, mm-hmm. where the ins, <laughs> the underside of your skin is in flames, but nobody can see it, right? So you're just like, Hey, what's going on? And so I look at when I, you know, that's what I think that was maybe is a defense mechanism for me and why I placed it in the running part of it. Because if I like when I get to the hard part, if I go, got to practice, this is the way it's supposed to be. Mm it makes it a lot easier for me to deal with it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that's ultimately what it is. I mean, I think that's the whole point of training. Yeah. That you're yeah. supposed to get there. Yeah. But to Courtney's point, but then that means that the that the battle starts there. Yeah. Everything else has been preview. And I think that's the part that people miss. I don't, I don't think anybody's really missing the point you're making of getting to that point. Yeah. But I wonder if they're really ready to then say, let's deepen this relationship. Let's yeah. create a relationship that says... And it's hard to do in marathon training. I mean, there's not a lot of opportunities to put yourself in the same kind of place. If you get to the same place that you're at in a marathon at mile 20, then you're probably risking injury because you can't get there very often, right? It's challenging and you have to frame that. That's So how do you get good at that? So how do you get into that place? I'm not good at it. That's why I generally liked to train alone Mm -hmm. is because I knew that if I was with people, they would pad that load for me. And I knew that the best way to address that was just to go solo on a mission. Yeah. It's so funny. And I, I, when I ran, I was always wanted to be with other people so I could put myself in a relate in my own inner relation with where they were at with their pain right. mm-hmm. because I had to learn that way. Right. I mean, I, cause I trained all by myself and then I raced in environments where people were trying to destroy each other. And then I got to the collegiate level where all of a sudden your teammates were like, as good or better than you were, and I well, wasn't that alone anymore. Because they're at that level. But then mm-hmm. you overtrain and you do stupid stuff, and you right. end up with a stress fracture like I did. And then you figure it out, and then you start dancing around it. And I think there's just that's why I think that's there's so cool. many beautiful ways to train and ways mm-hmm. to do it. It's but but ultimately you're in this relationship with suffering, and I think that that's the main takeaway from today's conversation is like suffering is a relationship, and if you don't recognize it as a relationship, then you're missing. Um, then you're gonna have real hard times dealing with it. Right. And you're going to have to have coping mechanisms, detachment or jumping in or whatever. But maybe that's not even the most that that's the best approach. Maybe the best approach is to just put your arms around it and say, hey, here it is. And how do I deal with you? And especially if it's going to be something that you're going to deal with consistently, whereas if you have a major loss in your life and a trauma or tragedy that occurs, you want to create that detachment. So then you can allow the whole situation to kind of calm down. You know, you think about getting your heart broken. I mean, it's really, when you get your heart broken, it's one of those things where you have a cognitive experience, a rational experience, and this makes no sense. This person was not good for me, and they left me, and I can understand that. But the experience, the emotional, the animal, yeah. the human animal, the that's this kind of weird place that's in between, like it is devastated and can't go on and can't figure it out. 
it's like, so you got to put that space there. But with running, what we're saying, okay, that's a relationship with, that's a relationship with suffering, that kind of suffering. But if you're going to do this on a, on the reg, like mm. you're yep. going to put yourself, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to buy a ticket to the sea feast of suffering, then let's get good at it. And let's nuance it and understand it. And, and then, as Michael said, and then create your own special version of it. Right. That, I was once told that um, two things that I kind of want to honor in this one so we can earmark it. Sorry for the abrupt. Oh, totally. But I just, I just it, it feels very important to me. to. I was told two things, and I'll start with the first is pain is the greatest motivator. Mm-hmm. First of all, that couldn't be more true. I think that that's, to me, that was mental. And it motivated me to get down the road. The second is what we do with our pain ultimately defines our character. And how we deal with pain, how we manage pain, and how we deal with it, mental or physical, I do think defines our character. And if we translate that directly into training, how we manage pain during training ultimately defines the character that we have going into a race. I think that's as good as personality, life circumstances, simulated, unsimulated, animal, you know, Mm -hmm. mental. But I wanted to honor those two things. I learned that in my outpatient group and I don't think that I would be here today talking to you guys if I didn't really believe that. Right. Well, I read a book last year called Tough. Uh, I can't remember the guy's first name, but his last name's Everett. And he has four C's for being tough in the first one's character. Mm-hmm. Like, now, I, I, I argued with that book because, as you mentioned, Michael, I think that there's a, something underneath that. And that's a belief. Well, I think that doesn't go before that, it. I think character comes after I it. I agree. It's what we do with our pain. But he was saying that if you if you view it from a character perspective and if you have character, he was talking about building character, knowing you what your character is. So he's talking about all these things that were worldview based, mm-hmm. belief based, but he didn't want to go down that road for whatever reason, because maybe it would have made a messier book. But um, but yeah. I do think that, you know, it, and that book is great. He talks about three, four C's, character, um, uh, capability, capacity and um, consciousness. Well, no, one of the C, I can't remember what the last C is, but, you know, capability is that you're able, you're capable of handling the load that's thrown at you and capacity is that it's it. So one is the, so capability is sort of like on a graph, it's the horizontal, right? Right. And then the capacity is the vertical Vertical. that you can go deep with it. Um, And uh, I think that that's so true that it's a great piece to pull in here, Michael, that your ability to deal with suffering and dealing with suffering in some kind of way really does come back to um, how you want to be, how you live and how you want to be perceived and how you perceive yourself. And those things kind of are why I always end up back at some kind of belief slash worldview place because I'm kind of like, there's got to be a bottom of a pool to push off of. Because if you're talking about character, somebody's going to say whose character and under what conditions. Because right now we've got people who have a lot of character who are getting canceled. (laughs) And a lot of people who have a lot of character who are having, who have attributes and personality structures that we think are not good and not right. So that needs to be based in something that's agreed upon in some kind of way, or at least is coherent for the individual that's dealing with it. Maybe I should say it that way. Yeah, and I think too, I mean, there are some people who when when faced with great adversity they just crumble there's no moral attachment to that at all right it may be some people the... just like simply can't handle and they 
right? But again, this is like, I, I've, when you mentioned your, your, your two points that you always sort of keep in your back pocket, those are because those are two things that I, over the last 17 years now, have think about a lot. And it's when you're faced with adversity and you either deal with it or don't deal with it, all of that, all of that is a combination of the energy you've acquired over your time combined with the energy of all the people who came before you, right? So, which is a really stupid way to say nature versus nurture, right? And like, if we, let's say, we'll put it in just in a really basic uh, sort of picture. You go into a race and you know you're gonna, and like, you've set a really big goal. And you're going to see Jesus. Yeah. You're, yeah. You know, you have a time goal and you have a place goal and all that kind of, you know what I mean? Let's put all the external yeah, stressors. I always, that, when I say that, I'm like, you're going to see Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Or you meet the devil at the and, crossroads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think, let, let, and let's say everything goes sideways, right? It's just disastrous. And, you go through that period afterwards where you're like, what the fuck was that? Right? Like, and then you have to dissect everything you've done. Right? And what if you got to a place where you didn't have to dissect it? Uh, that's, that to me is character. That's, yeah. that's, that's what that put in whatever word that yeah. is to me. That's like, yeah. Do you keep going yep. or do you do something else? Right. Like how you deal with, yep. how you deal with, it's not about the outcome, Mm-mm. but it, the outcome has nothing to do with it. And that's why I've grown to over the past few years, maybe over the past, like maybe, maybe less than a year have been putting myself through this idea where I'm falling out of love with the outcome and falling in love with the process. Yeah. And it's something that I've always believed in, but like now I'm actually trying it. And, and I think that the feast of suffering is if you want another feast, you can you can go six months later yeah. and have another one. It's it to me, character is not right or wrong. It's not yeah. good or bad. It's just like how, how you, how you deal with that is going to define the next one. And I don't think the outcome of the last one even matters. I think once you string them all together and you get a little history, then either, either you embody the spirit of, of somebody, a runner who's going to keep going, or you embody the spirit of somebody who's going to go find something else. And that's totally, totally fine. Fall down seven times, get up eight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, What you're calling character, I would call coherence. Mm -hmm. Like that, that self is coherent. Like it's, there's no, if you're able to be able to that situation where you don't have to dissect it, right. then you've got coherence. It things went sideways. 
Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, but it, but not in it is it is it is what it is from a defeatist standpoint. No. But but I went in fully move on understanding yep. that these were the vagarities in the scenario and the situation, and I'll take it as it goes because I did all the things I could do, right. and I'm my character or my coherence is high, and so therefore I'm ready to go on to the next thing. That's or I, the thing in between the thought and the behavior. Yeah. That moment after the race is the thing. Mm-hmm. Either it, either you, you're on autopilot and you do something or you just simply understand it, you internalize it, you move on, you have coherence. But I think it's something to say that that's a next level experience to be in a position where you can do what you just described, John. So I do think for a lot of people, they need free time to sort of think about it. Well, I think there needs to be a lot of dissection. <laughs> I think there has to be some dissection early on in yeah. order to be able to do that. Right. This is what the mil- in the military they call a debrief, right? Right. Like when you finish, and this is what I think a lot of people don't do in training. They don't mm. debrief. They don't go in, okay, I have a brief, which is my coach gave me a workout. And a lot of mm. times they don't even engage with the brief. They just say six times a mile. That's where I do pace. think, Steve, that there is character in that. Because when you say, when you say to somebody, this is what I saw as an objective third party to your thing. Mm-hmm you being the athlete we can either our character will define how we accept that feedback whether it be constructive criticism or praise or this or that um to me that that there is a level that's a little bit beyond coherence that we have to be able to debrief and what type of character we have in that situation will help us internalize making the next decision I hear you. I hear you 100%, but I'm going to push back at a metaphysical level, so watch out here, right? What you're calling character assumes that there's one coherent self, and we are not coherent selves. We're all parts. You're parts. You're dealing with all kinds of parts. You've got your protector. You've got your loyal person. You've got all these parts. They're all existing in you, and you're saying, I have some coherent, I have some basic character that is Michael, and I push back against that 100% because that does not show up in real life in my experience. Now I'm heavily involved in a psychological model. So I have to state that. So your experience may be character and coherence, but what I feel like is really coherent is taking all those parts and being able to rectify them into one, to bring them all together into one cohesive whole that says, today, this is where I'm standing, mm. okay? And it, it looks like character, and I stand behind your experience of it as character. But I'm going to stand by my view of coherence and say, no, I actually think that's a little bit deeper than your, than your character. I'm not saying it's better. I'm just saying it's coming at a more rudimentary bottom level than that, and that your character is this assumption you have of coherence. Below that is the actual coherence. So if it helps you hold, I think your character is the glue, right? It's this glue that you're saying, and I'm saying below that is the, the, the organizing structure that you would have put together the whole project in the first place. So like, but that, but though I'm quibbling, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm quibbling at this point, mostly because I'm thinking about it from a pedagogical level of how you would experience, how you would put this out in front of people. Mm-hmm. But what you're describing is how your lived experience of it is. I honor that 100%. Um, but I do think it's useful to think about when we have problems, and that we find ourselves in a situation where we're outside of our character, okay? What we're, what we're identifying as our character. That's still you. <laughs> so you have to reconcile that and bring that part into coherence with your character. And I think this is very challenging 
I mean, I can give you examples, but they're, they're, to me, I can't really, I could give you examples, but they would be, somebody would need to give me permission. Mm -hmm. So I could use you as an example. Let me use your example at Houston, because I think I have your permission, right? Mm -hmm. Last year at Houston, you went in with a clear, you had a loose idea of what you wanted to do. You went Mm -hmm. through some training with my training and I exposed you. My training, I didn't personally, the training exposed your um, ability to reach the level that you wanted to reach on race day. And then it created a lot of distress with you, right? And you found yourself at one point in time in your training and somewhere in December, sitting on the side of the road, Mm -hmm. literally sitting on the side of the road in the middle of a workout. Mm -hmm. And what I would argue at that point is some part of you was not jiving with your character and was creating distress. And that part of you, which I might, if I got into it, I don't really, we would have to, we would have to go through that whole process to try to figure out what that all is. Right. But at the end of the day, that's not you. I think you may have even said to me something to the effect of it. That wasn't me sitting on the side of the road. Mm -hmm. I didn't even recognize that dude. And I'm telling you, man, this shit happens all the time with people. In my experience, what I happen is they don't have the character that you have, Michael, to stand there and say, no, but I want to be coherent. Most people are like, oh, I don't know what the fuck happened. And they just, poof, they don't take responsibility for it. They leave it out there and they just say, I don't know what that is. Maybe it'll show back up. Hope it never shows back up again. And guess what? That's the first dude. That's the first part in the room. So anyway, I'll just, that may be going into the weeds a little bit too no, much. it's but not going into the weeds. I think it's, it, it's, I'm thinking that character is the thing that sits on top of it for sure. But it's the thing that's the fuel to move on if I didn't have the character to try and understand or the like the belief system to try and understand what happened at Houston because now my outlook on it was that was an awesome race the reason I think it was an awesome race is because I think deep down my time was a 257 that's where I was at I was still leveraging some old kind of um, methods, tactics to shoot better than that because I really just wanted the Boston qualifier. And about a month before, I realized that I'd be 35 on the Boston Marathon day, so my qualifying time wasn't three anymore. It was 3.05, and that really kind of messed me up mentally. And my tactics didn't need to be... I was more confused about my intention very confused and having a lot of mental turmoil for intention at that point in time. And, and I thought I was somebody, I was acting like somebody, but deep down inside I was suppressing what I was at that time. So the cool thing about the objective, like eh, not the objective, the, um, the coherence part was there foundationally. There was, there wasn't coherence. And what I was doing, who I was, what I was practicing, all that, all that stuff. But the cool thing is, I think that the character helped me not shy away from that and say, oh, I don't understand like what, what Steve's talking about. Cause it was, to me, it was frustrating because I was like, I don't know how to, I didn't know how to process that information, but but I'm glad I stuck with it because two weeks ago, I think I finally realized what you always said, like, what's your, what's your, why are you racing this race? 
and to me it was the reason before was so higher on like the you know the 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 level of being foundationally true it was very superficial like why I was doing a race um when I was able to understand that deep down inside I don't really I don't have a reason to love the time at the back of my name and grieving that because because there was a part of me that really wanted that time at the back of my name but I already did it I, I, I went through that I qualified for Boston on my first marathon I couldn't walk for two weeks after like I went way above the skis and I can probably best that time if I put in more volume and this and that. But the thing about me is that I've realized that I don't even care about that anymore because I already did it. And I never redefined what that was. That intention was was never reset. And when I grieved that in that process that you helped me through and my character not shying away from it, was able, I was able to grieve that and say, it's not about times anymore for me. It's okay if you run for the love of it. And it's okay if you run because it's you're not going to be the best. And my half marathon time this week was an hour and a half. And my best is probably 121. And I probably have much better than that in the tank. But I don't truly believe inside that there's a why to go after that at this point in time. Maybe that changes down the road. I'm not going to be the best runner on the planet from, you know... I may want to one day, you know, but, but that's, to me, there's something special about coherence and then the way that we deal with, with that from, from rock to rock. So I, I think, um, that it's coherence is just the underlying thing and mm -hmm. your character is how that's played out on the road. Yeah. The and you're, and you're, and you're, yeah. well, there's the action. It's the act of mm -hmm. your character is where it's shown out. Yeah. You didn't, you, you, I was saying you were having struggles in your training. I didn't say that you were having struggles on race day because I think you got your shit together pretty well. You mm -hmm. are, you figured it out. But training if you was had, a disaster. But if you, but if you didn't have that moment where you were sitting on the side of the road, and I remember this, because Lena was like, I ran up on him, and he's just sitting there, like, and he's like, what the fuck is going on? How in the world am I found myself here? How do I find myself in this that position? That was the crossroads where I couldn't understand and then that we, and my then intention was not what I thought it and was. And you decoupled from the pace. You decoupled yeah. from the time. You reformulated. You got that part. And brought it into coherence. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then you're able to have that character that you really hold, which is Michael follows through. Michael brings toughness. Michael brings whatever the things, your values that you hold that you bring forward from it were actually played out on race day. But if you hadn't gotten that part, what if happens if that part, if I didn't create a training program that was challenging enough to where you had to have that experience? I mean, when I say people that the people I'm training people at multiple levels, I mean it. Like that in I am building a plan so that you will fail so that you have to deal with your failure. And none of that of makes way. sense until, until you fail, until you fail a few times. And that's, what's so crazy is, is, is that that race was super insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but I'm still dealing with that. And it has sent me down this road to try and I've been trying to define my Boston marathon intent for years and I finally got it. Like, it's not about a time. It's about running hard. To me, I just want to honor the race. Beautiful race. I just want to honor the race. I started running because I, I stood at the Boston Marathon when I was living in Boston and was probably hammered drunk and making fun of the runners and, you know, just 
was a terrible experience for me. And I wasn't happy at that time. Mentally, I wasn't okay. And I wasn't making fun of the runners. I was just, I thought it was Mardi Gras, basically. Yeah. You know, it was just a party, no right. reverence, no honor. And um, like, I couldn't do that, you know, or something. Yeah. And, and now I'm going back to pay my penance and I'm going to run it hard because of that. That's why I'm running it. There's no time involved. I think a good time will be there. Yeah, you're, but, you're deal, in the Mardi Gras analogy, you're dealing with the indigenous need to express a culture that was repressed and not allowed to come yeah. out, right? So you were like, exactly. and that's what Mardi Gras is. It's like an, yeah. indig an indigenous people have been decimated and desecrated and placed into place. And they're like, fuck all y'all motherfuckers. We're going to have a party. Yeah, <laughs> and so. that's what I think that's what kind of the, the postmodern version of Boston is like, hey, guys, we all have these miserable lives that were stuck being lawyers, doctors, <laughs> and real, but we're, uh, one day we're going to go out and party. <laughs> And you were making fun of it because you had another way to party, a party exactly. that, you know, it's like, but everybody's got their own little microcosm and they're yeah. dealing with it in the way that they do. Right. right. So that's, that's my analysis of it. Sorry for the tangent. I don't know if it's talking about suffering anymore, but like it's, I, I'm saying tangent. it's essential. It's essential because, because I don't ever think I would have understood what you were saying. What, why are you racing this race? What's your intention with this race? I, even as a pretty deep dude, and I think a lot in, I couldn't even get to the bottom of it. And I was just like, maybe it's your why is not necessarily what is. It's, it's just a bunch of what isn't. <laughs> it's the it, presence. It, it, it of, very much it, can it, be it, that way. It, you know, like, but for, if you don't ask that why for that event, see what I've been a big mistake for years where I thought about the why being the most important question. And I do think at a basic fundamental level it is, but you can't, when you start asking why you start going back to, you go back to metaphysical, go down to first principles, things that are really hard for people to deal with. But if you ask somebody why they're running a race, they're going to come up with an answer. And then usually you can interrogate that. The training interrogates that answer, right? It just says, hey, are you really real? Are you really real about that? Is your character strong enough? Is there a cohesiveness here to be able to make that work? And then the training exposes that, challenges that, and people sometimes meet it head on, and sometimes people sidestep it, and sometimes people get fucking lucky and they roll. You know, but ultimately it's like, that's why I say my job is getting people to have a good starting line experience. But I'm sick of that now. Like I'm tired of telling people that my job is to give them a good starting line experience. I'm next leveling my responsibility and saying, I'm going to give you a good finish line experience. But before I wouldn't take that on. Yeah. Because I knew there was a mental component that I couldn't do anything about. Right. But now I'm realizing, oh, just in the same way I provided a physiological aspect for their preparation, mm -hmm. I can provide a psychological aspect that can get them from the starting line to the finish line in, a, in one piece where they can come across that finish line and have a good experience. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to run the time they want to run. Right. But it just means they're going to have a good experience. Mm -hmm. That's all I can do. And to me, that's like you can you can apply less proofs and more scientific method explore why not getting somebody to realize that some things aren't what they're shooting for is as important as defining the time um, and that process of figuring that out means you have to let things go yeah and that doesn't mean you have to know the answer you just have to let it go and things show up you yeah. know well you can practice something for 364 days and it goes one way you know, <laughs> 364th day it's safe to say that most people would assume everything's going to go okay. But that's the beauty of the whole thing is that it may not. Mm -hmm. And it, strangely enough, it happens on race day a lot. And I think, I, you know, that, and that's why, like, even in, in a disastrous race, I think after you've gone through the mourning period and everything, you can go, yeah, that was pretty fucking awesome. For years, I've stated right before my athletes leave me before they go back to, before they go to on race day, if I'm there at the race, they will, I'll say, um, 
they'll say, see you tomorrow. And I'll be like, well, if there is tomorrow, I'll see you. <laughs> and they always think it's a joke. But it's meant to be a statement that be careful because yeah. you might not wake up tomorrow. Right. And if you do wake up tomorrow, that means let's go get it. Yeah. Regardless of the situation, let's fucking go get it. Yeah. Because you could have not woke up or the sun could not have risen. I mean, it seems to continue to rise. Right. Which is fucking crazy. But anyway, whenever I say that, people are like, what are you talking about? I'm yeah. like, no, just one. Like, you know, the Buddhists say one precious life. Sometimes I think we just have one precious moment. It's just a continuity and consistently piecing together one precious moment. A string of moments. And if you, it's hard to hold that. Yeah. In coherence and cohesion. But I mean, damn, if your life doesn't turn into a whole bunch, you don't need why when that happens. Yeah. There's no fucking why. Yeah. It's just, here we are. You know, I think I, I used to use uh, the pursuit of why. Um, sort of in a self-defeating way where I spent so much time looking at why never actually did anything. You know what I mean? And that, I think that was just like, it's hard to find human significance in a cosmos. Yeah. I mean, you really, yeah. really, especially that's where people's, you know, ground their, their ultimate realities start to matter a little bit more. Because you need to interrogate that question and get a real purpose from that because you're going to look at it from a atheist or sort of a, 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 I don't believe in a, in a grand narrative right. tele, teleological purpose, right? It's like, well, what the hell then? Yeah. Because if you look at purpose, it's really challenging. I mean, and yet people keep having babies. I tell people that when they have a baby, I'm like, yes, like we're continuing. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're fucking continuing. That's the greatest amount of optimism you can find in the world is when people, especially when secular atheists have babies. I'm like, <laughs> yes! <laughs> you believe in yeah. life against all these, all rationality. Secular atheists for procreation. Yes. <laughs> That's our shirt. That's our shirt. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. Secular atheists for procreation. Yeah. <laughs>